This is The Book Show here on RTE Radio 1 and later tonight we'll be discussing the rise of literary journals in Ireland and we'll head to Trinity College Dublin to speak with the latest recipient of the prestigious Rooney Prize for Irish Literature, the writer E.M. Reapy. But first we're travelling across the world and back in time with Natasha Pulley. She's the author of The Watchmaker of Filigree Street, which was set in 19th century London. Her latest book, The Bedlam Stacks, is set in a similar time. Merrick Tremaine, an India office employee, is summoned away from his family's lavish Cornwall estate and gardens. He's dispatched to Bedlam, a holy town in Peru, and he's on the hunt for a special tree there, whose bark yields quinine, the only known treatment for malaria. Here's Natasha Pulley with a short reading as Merrick begins his quest. I had never really wanted to come to Peru, never mind been excited about it. There had been too much to worry about. Walking, the journey, Clem, the altitude, and all the hundreds of stupid things that could have killed us before we even began. I thought that something was gone in me, and I would never be uncircumspectly pleased with anything again. But all at once, it came back. The place where my father had stood and my grandfather, a place that was in my bones and stories and home, but had been lost to me as Byzantium for years. Here it was. I felt like I'd drawn a door on the wall at home in chalk and gone through into an imaginary place where the river was a dragon and somewhere in the forest was something stranger than elves. Come on, it's freezing, Clem said. Yep, right. The forest was dark, the canopy having completely blocked the daylight. A trail of soft lights flared between the trunks. I stopped again. Did you see that? See what? I pushed my hand over my eyes. Probably nothing. And that was Natasha Pulley there reading from the Bedlam Stacks. We know early on that Tremaine is co-opted into going because of his expertise, but also because of his family connection to Peru. Yes, absolutely. Several generations of his family have links with Peru. And one of the reasons that he's chosen to go is that the India office, who is organising the expedition, think that the local people in the area that they're visiting, where the trees that they want are, might respond better to Merrick because they know his family already. His father was born in Peru, but his grandfather is the really important one. Harry Tremaine goes out trying to do the same mission that Merrick is trying to do now, actually, and gets stuck for a year, nearly, um, in a tiny village way up in the mountains in the rainforest. So when... Merrick embarks on the quest to Peru. What he's trying to do is he wants to bring back this chinchona plant, the only source of quinine which can cure malaria. So what kind of research did you do into the actual recovery of the plant from Peru and then how it spread worldwide? The leader of the real historical expedition was a guy called Clements Markham and I stole him for the book. He, in real life, wrote a monograph for the Royal Geographical Society about the expedition and he explains exactly what they did right from leaving London all the way through Peru and then taking this stuff round to India. Um, His mission was unsuccessful, but the account is really detailed. But I did also go to Peru for three months. And what did you make of Peru? I lived in Lima for two and a half months. And Lima feels like it could be really any city anywhere outside of Western Europe. But as soon as you go into the heartland, so the old Inca territory, so Cusco, which is the Inca capital, you couldn't be anywhere else. And it is just astonishing what's still left and some places like Machu Picchu they just look like the people who built it just left and went out for a drink it's incredible 
Clearly, the book is written from the viewpoint of a Victorian explorer. And as such, Peru would have been seen as a great resource. Obviously, the people would probably have posed a threat to the British colonists. So did you have any concerns about how you portrayed the Peruvians in terms of their worldview? And, you know, you've got to be careful to avoid the stereotype of the savage and all of that. Yeah, absolutely. It's something that writers are always terrified of, sort of accidentally being horrifically offensive. The way that I tried to get around that was to make the character who's obviously racist the obvious bad guy. (laughs) The trouble with this book is it's not really a book about colonialism. It's a book about friendship and being left behind and time doing strange things. So colonialism is in it and the terrible nature of what the expedition is doing is there, but none of them really consider it to be terrible and it's not hugely addressed. So I think I've skirted the issue, possibly in ways that I shouldn't have. When Merrick and his colleague Clem arrive in the village of Bedlam, it's a very peculiar place. It's also very beautiful. Uh, there are suspended bridges between these extraordinary land formations, which are the obsidian stacks of the title. But there are also these exploding trees called whitewood and moving markayuk or statues. These are kind of strange and mysterious, uh, threatening tribe who live in the forest. So how does Merrick react to this and what gets in the way of his quest? So at first, he takes it all almost completely at face value. They they find these statues that move and Merrick thinks, well, they must be clockwork. And it takes him a long time to think, actually, maybe they're not clockwork. The village, as you say, is, is bordered around by these, these trees that explode. The wood also floats in air. And Merrick is not as bowled over by it as he could be because there was one at his house that exploded at the start of the novel and took out a wall. He's a gardener, so botanically he's incredibly interested in this stuff. So academic interest gets in the way a little bit. He's looking at these trees when he should be looking at the statues. And they also distract him from thinking too much about their guide, Raphael, who is extremely strange in his own way. But Merrick has this knack of putting aside strangeness and focusing on something that does matter but it's way off to the left of what he should be looking at. When I think of magic realism I think of people like Angela Carter uh, and magic realism is where obviously the fantastic creeps into a sort of realistic world but what you've done is you've taken magic realism and you've also used sort of the backdrop of colonialism which we've seen in books like Colts and Whitehead's The Underground Railroad or maybe Salmon Rushdie's Midnight Children but in the Bedlam Stacks it's the European exploration of South America in the 1800s and then the East India Company in Japan so what does magic realism bring to these settings and how does it enhance the way it's explored? Sure. I'm actually wary of of calling what I do magic realism because it implies that it's much cleverer than, than what I've actually done. I love fantasy and I love magic and Peruvian fairy tales are full of brilliant magic stuff. And what I wanted to do was write something historical but had real magic in it. And I don't think at any point I ever looked at it and went ah, this is magical realism, this must have a political message. There are politics touched on in it, but it's a very unpolitical book in my mind. And so the exploration of the Victorian side of things and what's going on in Peru at that time is very light because the focus is the magic part, probably much more than the realism part. And thanks to Natasha Pulley. Her novel, The Bedlam Stacks, is published by Bloomsbury Circus. 
Well, earlier in the week, the winner of the Rooney Prize for Irish Literature was announced in Trinity College, Dublin. It's an annual award given to an emerging Irish writer under 40. It's named after the former US ambassador to Ireland, Dr Daniel Rooney, who sadly passed away this year, and his wife Patricia. This year's winner is E.M. Reapy, who is the author of several short stories and a debut novel, Red Dirt, which is set among a group of young Irish people in Australia. I went along to Trinity to meet E.M. Reapy, and she began by reading the opening paragraphs of her book. Me and Shane moved to Perth about two months back, in Melbourne before that, pretty much taking caps and drinking goon all the time until we blacked out or puked or scored women more wasted than us, waking up in random hostels in St Kilda or in Aussie houses cramped with Irish immigrants to keep the rent down. Young ones like ourselves, younger even, was turning out to be worse than the way we were back in Ireland, off our faces all the time and running too low on dollars. I didn't want to go robbing, it was supposed to be a fresh start here. Shane's man bailed him out once with a grand, but we blew it in a weekend with Thai girls and a two-day session in a plastic Irish pub run by the biggest scumbags you could ever expect to find in Northside Dublin. They were legal and stuff in Australia, but I got the sniff of fugitives off them, that they could never go back home or they'd be arrested on landing. Should have tattooed crime watch on their shoulders instead of the big tricolour flags and fighting Irish leprechauns. We drank it all away there with them. And that was E.M. Reapy reading there from her debut novel, Red Dirt. Um, we're here in the long room with Elizabeth Reapy, and I, I think it's very fitting that we're here in this space because there are so many books around us and it's got that lovely old book smell. There are very prestigious looking busts of important writers and thinkers and there's people milling around taking photographs. Congratulations to you, Elizabeth. How do you feel about winning this year's Rooney Prize? Oh, I'm delighted, obviously. <laughs> um, yeah, it's great. Did you expect it? How did you hear about it? I didn't expect it, no, not at all. I was at a wedding in Galway and I was coming home and I decided I'd just go to the gym. Then Jared called me, so uh, I found out there. But I went into the hall and I was like, I better not be heavy breathing for this, so I had kind of calm down. <laughs> but yeah, it was brilliant. And then I was just, I've been smiling since. Well, this is the 41st year of the prize and a lot of people will know previous winners such as Dirini Grifa, who won it last year, Kevin Power, Kevin Barry, Sarah Baum, Colin Barrett, all sorts of people who are, are now household names. And um, We spoke to Kevin Power, who won the prize. Uh, he's the author of Bad Day in Black Rock and he won back in 2009. And he spoke to us about the impact the award had on him. When you're a, a, a writer at the early stages of his or her career, what you need above all else is is some kind of sense that your work has been read um, and, you know, that you're beginning to kind of carve out some kind of legitimate place for yourself. And for Irish writers, the Rooney Prize is, is there's no better acknowledgement that you, you have been read uh, than the Rooney Prize. It's, um, it's a wonderful feeling to know that your work has been read by people who have in the past been such good judges of Irish writing in an age when some literary prizes have been devalued by an aura of celebrity and an aura of kind of specious cachet the really prize it's still a, a valued currency it boosts confidence Kingsley Amos said that the only thing you can really say about a literary prize is that it's obviously nice if you win it but <laughs> what literary prizes do for the individual writer is is they you bring it back to the desk and you have something at the back of your mind that you can refer to when your confidence is low which it often is you're sitting in a room making up sentences about people who never existed to be able to refer to the esteem of the community in that way is uh, is, is enormously beneficial Elizabeth, do you kind of feel similarly? Do you, do you relate to, to what he's saying because i mean winning prizes but winning specific prizes can be huge for a writer 
Oh, yeah, I mean, I, I'm pretty sure every young writer in Ireland knows about this prize and <laughs> knows about who's received it before. And the, the writers on the list are writers that I've studied and I love their work, so it's just incredible. I first encountered you because you've edited an anthology called Word Legs, which was 30 writers under 30, I think. So what was it about you wanting to do that to champion other young Irish voices as being a young Irish writer yourself? I think I just thought there was a gap for, for it at the time and the sort of online journals and stuff weren't, it wasn't like it is now. So I just set it up. I don't know, my, my dad sort of said, oh, if you can't make the team, become the manager. <laughs> so it was to sort of give opportunities to other people like me who were just starting, but who couldn't go up against, you know, Kevin Barry in submission. You know, so it was just a, a jump off, a launch pad for people. So much of Australia is in this book in terms of, you know, maybe language and vernacular, and particularly the setting and the title of the book is very evocative of the place, I guess, Red Dirt. So what did Australia offer you as a writer in terms of what you could include in this book, but also what kind of a place is it for a writer? I mean, there's so much talk here about the journals and the online spaces and all these prizes like the Rooney Prize. Is there anything equivalent in Australia? Well, when I was over there, I wasn't over there as a writer initially, even though my second trip over, I was in Faruna Writers' House in New South Wales. So there's lots of opportunities in Australia. There's really good writing there. But in setting the book there, I mean, the landscape is is just amazing in Australia. It's And it's so different to here. Here, it's, everything is really small and really close together. There is just big, vast land. And it used to just blow my mind, so... I really enjoyed writing about it. It's an English-speaking country. Um, there's a lot of people of European descent there. So you kind of think you know it better than you do, and you don't know it. It's a, it's a different continent. It's the other side of the world. The environment is completely different. And so I just enjoyed putting my characters all around that, that landscape. And congratulations to E.M. Reapy for winning this year's Rooney Prize for Irish Literature. Her novel, Red Dirt, is published by Hedda Zeus. And actually, the winner of the 2015 Rooney Prize, Sarah Baum, was this week shortlisted for the Goldsmiths Prize for her novel, A Line Made by Walking, and we wish her all the best with that. Well, as we've just heard, competitions and prizes are a huge encouragement for writers to get writing, and our own Dear Character competition has encouraged many of you to write to us, judging by the amount of entries you've been getting. So keep them coming as the deadline is fast approaching. Over the past few weeks, we've been asking you to write a letter to a character from a novel and offer them a piece of your mind or maybe a piece of your heart, a warning or a bit of advice, anything you might want to say to them. And a selection of those letters will be read out at a special episode of The Book Show that we're recording in Smock Alley Theatre on October 21st. There, we'll be joined by Anne Enright, who's our judge, Lisa McInerney, Paul Howard and Donald Ryan to discuss characters and novels, how to bring them to life and how to make them immortal. So, your letter could be read at that show and the winning letter, chosen from a shortlist by Anne Enright, will win a €250 book token. You can book tickets to the show at smockalley.com and all of the details about our competition are on the book show page on rte.ie. But remember, the letter can only be 500 words max and the deadline is midnight on October 9th. As well as competitions and prizes, literary journals in Ireland are an important platform for aspiring writers. And earlier this week, Banshee Literary Journal launched its fifth issue. And another journal, The Well Review, is just days away from a fundraising deadline for its second issue. With funding a constant struggle, journals are often more a labour of love for the people who publish them. So I joined Banshee at their launch in Books Upstairs in Dublin earlier this week to meet with one of the editors, Emma Ryan. 
Ima, we're here in Books Upstairs and a crowd is gathering to launch the fifth issue of Banshee. Uh, I have it here beside me. It's beautifully produced. And I'm wondering, what was the genesis of Banshee? Did you see a gap in the journal market? journal came out of conversations that myself, Laura and Claire, the other two editors had. We've three writers and friends for years and we're always like sharing work, sharing feedback with each other, talking about books we loved and we used to kind of joke about setting up our own small press or literary journal and just as time went on it just became more and more feasible. I think we looked around and we saw stuff like The Long Days Back, we saw Gorse, we saw Guts, um, we saw Tram Press, all of these fantastic small publishing uh, setups being founded by young women and we kind of said it just seems like a great time for us to launch something like this and we kind of not so much that we saw a gap in the market but we kind of said you know there was no other journal out there with kind of three young female editors in their in their 20s we're no longer in our 20s sadly but um (laughs) we kind of said that would be an interesting platform and I think it's worked out really well. I think women feel very comfortable submitting to us. I think young people feel very comfortable submitting to us. And we've kind of published the first pieces by a lot of really wonderful new young writers. So that's always a great feeling. I actually remember this conversation was started on Twitter and I think a lot of people were, were following it. And it, I think a lot of people were intrigued because it was three women at the helm. And earlier this week, Tramp Press, who are two women editors as well, has said that they won't take submissions from people who say they don't read women or address them as dear sirs. So again, did you see that you thought that the women weren't being represented in journals or that there was just a space for a different kind of editorial vibe? Yeah, maybe that there was a space for kind of a new editorial outlook. You know, I think we've been very lucky. We've never been addressed as dear sirs, thankfully. Um, maybe the fact that we're called Banshee, I think it's possibly always in people's minds that we're female and Irish. Um, we've gotten dear women a few times, which is interesting. What can journals do for, for new writers? Because I, I think of them as something as a lifeline, because the idea of a novel seems like such a massive undertaking or trying to get a big publisher on your side is huge. But a journal seems achievable and like something that you might get a, have a shot at. Absolutely, yeah. And I think for me as a writer, being published in journals has been so encouraging and so wonderful. And that was part of our motivation that we wanted to provide a good publishing experience for young writers. It's so important at the start of your career to get that encouragement, to get decent editorial input as well and to kind of get used to the process. Well, in Cork City earlier this year, a new journal sprang to life. The Well Review is edited by Sarah Byrne, and she says that it arose out of her connection to Sunday's Well, the hilly neighbourhood overlooking the city. My mother grew up very nearby. It was my home away from home. It was where I suppose my mother would have told me so many stories, like this street or that street or what happened in that house. Lots of love stories, lots of stories as well around poverty, class distinction, older stories as well, going back to earlier in the 20th century. Just stories about her family that branched out. So Some of her family left, some of her family didn't. And what different streets meant to her, I suppose. And then it really appealed to me to be, I suppose, walking the same streets of my ancestors, you know. Mary Noonan is a Cork-based poet who is a contributor to The Well Review. And here she reads a poem from the journal called Ascensure, which takes us to an old apartment in Paris. Ascenseur. On the other side of this wall, an old woman is rattling hangers in a mahogany wardrobe and pulling open wooden drawers. I imagine her widowed, small-boned, arranging bibelot, a lifetime of strung beads. When asked, she will say there was shouting. There was shouting and banging of doors 
and long silences. One day, a man sobbed on the balcony. On the other side of this door, an antique cage rises and falls through a shaft of seven floors cut deep into marble and curling bronze. A missile-shaped weight creeps up and down the outer wall, hauling the iron box on its pulleys, jolting it into motion, sometimes stopping halfway between floors. From the bed, I listen to the clank of the old machine, the slap of grill doors. And that was Mary Noonan's poem, A Censure. Well, I'm still here at the Banshee Lounge with editor Emer Ryan. Emer, journals have long been a platform for poetry and the short story, but recently I think the essay has regained a sort of popularity. And is this something that you're keen to represent in Banshee? Absolutely, yeah. The three of us just love reading essays. And unfortunately, it makes up quite a small portion of our submissions. We always end up publishing two or three essays per issue, but we'd love to be publishing five or six, you know. There's just something about essays that I think opens up writers and makes them really dig deep, really be honest. So we'd love to get some more essays in. Aoife Barry is one of the contributors to Banshee and she has written an essay for this issue. It's called Dress Sexy at My Funeral, which is the title of a song by Smog. And the essay focuses on music. Dress sexy at my funeral, my good wife. Dress sexy at my funeral, my good wife. I was 17 when I first heard those words, sung by a baritone voice coming from small black speakers perched high up in the corner at the local shop I worked in. Every Thursday evening for many months, while on a late shift, I'd hear that song waft down from above where they kept the penny sweets, and each time I'd wonder about its meaning. The radio show's presenter was Dave Fanning. The band was Smog, and I had no real idea what the song was about. As it hand out change and pack cereal boxes and sliced pans into plastic bags, I'd ask myself, why would somebody want their wife to turn up to their funeral dressed sexy? It was one of those things that didn't make sense when I was 17, when I didn't really understand sex or revenge or even the permanence of death. In my apartment, there are thousands of CDs, a few feet of vinyl and a plastic box somewhere filled with old tapes. They're half-heartedly alphabetized and most of them need to be rehomed in a new set of shelves. But they're a little history of my life, from the early handmade tapes with sun-bleached handwriting to the dusty records picked up in Dublin charity shops. When my mum visits, she always casts an eye over them and says, so you're not planning on selling them anytime soon? We all have our objects that we are attached to beyond reason, our talismans that we imbue with a certain power. Music can fall so easily out of our lives. As I get older, I have to make a more of a deliberate attempt to discover a new music. I realise that gigs are on that I knew nothing about. I have dry spells where nothing new I listen to moves me. I question if I've lost the ability to know what's good and what's not. I get frustrated with myself and with music. And that was Aoife Barry there reading Dress Sexy at My Funeral from the current issue, issue five of Banshee. There are so many journals in Ireland now, but who are they for? Sarah Byrne of The Well Review says that for her, the important thing is to reach readers and writers who wouldn't normally be part of a so-called scene. 
there's lots of people hiding in their rooms writing who don't go to festivals, who don't go to readings. And I'll meet them in a cafe um, and I'll be really embarrassed talking about poetry maybe because, you know, it's kind of a self-conscious occupation. And uh, they'll say, I wrote poetry or I read poetry. I've read poetry since I was a child. And I think that that connection needs to happen, even if it's just around audiences. We're trying to reflect on who's coming to these things and how that can be way more outward looking as opposed to the same people talking to each other about the same things over and over again. Emer Sarah Byrne spoke there about her concern over a closed circle of people trying to gain access either as a reader or a writer. So how does Banshee address the sort of need for diversity and sort of bringing people in who feel maybe that they're on the outside? Yeah, it's so interesting because there is such a like diverse selection of literary journals in Ireland and you find yourself thinking it's great for writers because they have so many places to submit to but of course it's not really about writers it's it's more about readers and it's something at Banshee that we're very conscious of we've gotten Banshee into some libraries we're always looking to get it into more accessibility is a huge thing for us you know we want anyone who enjoys reading to be able to pick up Banshee and not be intimidated by it not feel it's too kind of literary or highfalutin for them um, and that you know they'll find something that they love in there and I suppose for us as editors, we come from a very varied background. You know, I've been in journalism, Claire and Laura write YA, as well as other things. We love all different kinds of genres and we love all different kinds of forms and we're kind of just open to everything. Emer, thanks so much for that. And thanks to everyone who contributed here this evening at the launch of Banshee issue five. Well, Banshee can be found at all good bookshops, including here at Books Upstairs. And if you want to buy it online, just visit BansheeLit.com. You also still have a few days to contribute to the Well Reviews Fund It campaign and that's on fundit.ie. Well, that's it from the book show tonight. Thanks for listening and thanks to producer Regan Hutchins and to series producer Zoe Cummins. (laughs) 